Man, it's good to be here with you guys tonight. Um, like Lonnie said, you know, it's just been, I feel like there's such a kindred spirit with Keystone uh, Church. And it was, uh, it was actually in a church a lot like this one that I met this girl. Um, are there any uh, single guys in the house tonight? By show of hands. Any single men? This word's for you, man. I guess you're the, the only single guy in the Wow. There's more single guys in the house. I mean, this word's for you. So I, I, I'm in this church, right? And I'm in this, I'm in this uh, Christian rock worship kind of band. And uh, I'm up there playing my electric guitar. And I look out and this, this really good looking brunette walks through the back door. And our eyes kind of meet, right? And it's like this moment. And then she looks away and I keep looking. And then she looks back and looks away and I keep looking. And she looks back. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm being like really creepy right now. So like, I like, so I, I strategized a little bit. I pulled back, just played my guitar, man, just played my guitar. And I waited until one of those really deep worship songs like Oceans came on when everybody's got their hands raised and their, their faces are like this. And then I was just, man, I was just checking her out, you know. <laughs> it was awesome. And so I told the guys, you know, like, I, I met her. We, like, really seemed to have this chemistry. I told the guys, I was like, I met my wife tonight. Like, it's, that's it. She's the one. And they're like, are you sure? Like, don't say it unless you meet it. I'm like, no, I know. She's, she's the one. And so she was the one. And so she's, here she is, my wife, Sheena. And can, can you just stay in and wave at everybody, She. This is my... This is the brunette, you know? So, um, so for those of you who are thinking, like, I'm, like, really spiritual because I called it, you know, like, he said she was the one and he ended up marrying her. I'm just so glad that third time is the charm because I knew twice before and it totally didn't work. So um, just thankful that the Lord brought Sheena into my life. Her name means God is gracious and God's been really gracious to me. And so we have two daughters, Zoe, who's seven, and Adele, who's four. And, um, man, we just... I love my girls. I told the Lord, I was like, I know you're going to give me a son because I won't know what to do with girls. And he gave me a girl. So I guess that's the way he works. So as for me, I'm a former megachurch pastor and a recovering know-it-all. And so you guys are going to hear a little bit about my journey um, of learning to um, learning what it is to be humbled by the Lord. And it's amazing when the Lord humbles you, he's very kind in the humbling. And so the Lord's been very kind to me, and that's really my testimony. The Lord has been kind to me. And uh, so I want to share some things that I've been learning uh, only as I've been unlearning former things. You know, personal growth doesn't just come through learning, right? Often the stagnation that we encounter in our lives is a result of a certain uh, mode of thinking that got us to where we are. So unlearning involves letting go. Letting go involves emptying our hands, so to speak, right? Allows us to grasp something new, to move forward. And if you're not willing to unlearn, then you'll become consumed with being right rather than a desire to discover. So it's discovery that brings growth. Can you say that discovery? Come on. So let's pray. Let's just bring that into our prayer right now. Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come into this room that we would have humble hearts, uh, that we would put away even all the things that we think that we know for the sake of discovering you. I thank you that you're a communicating God, that there's no shortage of things that you would want to say to us tonight. So I pray that we would be a people whose ears are open. I pray that 
even as I share, even if there's a pause, that there will be a moment of dialogue where we say, God, what are you saying to me in this? We thank you that you're faithful, that your word doesn't return to you void. We thank you in Jesus' name. So I'm going to interweave some things about L24 Collective. Some of you have heard about this new endeavor that we're moving back east to do. Uh, but that's not really the main focus of tonight. This is, I told Lonnie, I said, I don't have a PowerPoint. This isn't like move you guys through. I really just want to unpack some things that the Lord's been laying on my heart. And lately I've been consumed with studying the last chapters of each gospel leading into Acts. I just can't get enough of the stories of the resurrected Christ. And one of these is where L24 found its name and its inspiration. L24 is based on Luke 24. And there we see the resurrected Jesus approach two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But he's unrecognized. So he falls in and he begins to walk with them. And they begin to have dialogue. And they begin to say, hey, you know, it really doesn't make sense, all the things that have just happened in Jerusalem. You know, the Messiah came, but he was just crucified. And Jesus says, what what do you mean it doesn't make sense? Don't you understand all of Scripture? And he begins to unpack all of Scripture for them on that walk together in light of current events. Don't you think that if Jesus was bringing all the things that are happening in our environment, in Colorado, in the United States, into the context of all of Scripture, that would be the most mind-blowing, best sermon you've ever heard. But they still don't recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize him in the sermon. They continue to walk. The day grows late. And they fall in and they they get some lodging together and they're at the table together. And then Jesus breaks bread and he blesses them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they saw him. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. They even said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was sharing the scripture, right? But they still didn't know him at that time. Jesus was revealed at the table. Jesus was revealed in relationship. And so that's kind of a paraphrase of a chapter that I really recommend is worth digging into on your own time. That's not going to be my main text for tonight. But it's, it's absolutely incredible. It was simply put, the heart of L24 Collective is just to gather people around the table and to show them Jesus. And if you're interested, you can check out our videos, blogs, all that kind of stuff at l24collective.com. There's all kinds of stuff that we've written and we've put out. Um, but there's a final gospel chapter we're about to get into that's having a big impact on our approach, our mindset, and that's where we're going right now. So if you have your Bibles, can you open them or turn them on, you know, whatever device you're using? And let's go to John 21, verses 1 through 14. John 21, verses 1 through 14. It says this, I'm reading out of the ESV. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Something in this really grabbed me. And the first thing that I noticed is that, you know, these guys have been working all night. When Jesus shows up, what they couldn't accomplish in hours happened in a moment. This is grace at work, right? But watch this. Track this order of events really carefully with me. Follow along. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was him. He asked the disciples if they caught anything, to which they reply no. Jesus tells them, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and they do. The disciples don't even know that it's Jesus yet. Isn't this amazing? But they don't tell the stranger, mind your own business. We've been fishing for years. You know, just, you just keep on your long walk. We know what we're doing here. They take the time to acknowledge him. They were observant of the stranger embracing the interruption amidst their frustration and were unknowingly being obedient to the Lord. And the result was that kingdom came to them that morning. I'm going to use the word kingdom a lot in this, and I have a really simple definition. Kingdom just means kingship. So whenever I say kingdom, that means that it's the kingdom of God. That's the established kingship of Jesus, right? So Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. They do. They catch fish. And his authority was made known. And John says, it's the Lord, right? So as I'm reading this, the Holy Spirit impresses this on my heart. He says, Joe, my kingdom comes through the unexpected. Can you say that? Unexpected. After John recognizes it's the Lord, Peter does something different here. He doesn't shout out, Lord, if it's you, bid me come out across the water as he'd done before. No, he doesn't even wait for any kind of confirmation. As soon as there's a hint, hey, it's the Lord, he dives in. Peter throws himself into the sea and swims to shore. What a beautiful picture of desperation for the presence of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit impresses this on my heart. Joe, my kingdom comes to the humble. The story goes on to describe Jesus sitting with his disciples, sharing a meal he'd already prepared for them on the shore. A beautiful picture. Relational God. Let's take note of these two things. If you're taking notes, write these down. This is what we're about to unpack. Number one, my kingdom comes through the unexpected. And number two, my kingdom comes to the humble. So life's been amazing for my family in Colorado. It's been a place of healing and restoration for us. Um, actually, John Plotner, the guy who's responsible, is sitting right in front of me, man. I'm just so thankful. Um, you know, I tell Sheena all the time, man, I'm so glad that John saved our family. Not really, Jesus did, you know. I mean, we're in church, so I'll say that. But I'm just so thankful for people that God's used uh, to bring restoration into our lives. And, um, you know, one of the best things that's happened over these past couple of years is that I've been spending more time with my kids. 
And uh, I love sharing their short, quirky quotes. Uh, one that I shared this past week was where my four-year-old Addie was, uh, she was brushing her teeth, and I'm standing there with her, and, and um, she, you know, after a big spit, she looks up at me with this big kind of toothpaste-covered grin, and she says, Dad, when I grow up, I'm definitely spanking my kids. I'm like, where does that, where does that even come from? I, I don't know. She hasn't even had a, she probably needs a spanking, but hasn't had one in like forever. You know, I don't even know. But, but my favorite was a couple months ago um, when she said, uh, she asked me, Daddy, when I grow up, can we be neighbors? Oh, man. That was like the, one of the best things I've ever heard, you know. And so I've really been in. My, my kids, and the coolest part is that they actually like me, um, for now. Um, so, and, I mean, another amazing thing is so does my wife, right? So we'll be married 10 years this November, and it just keeps getting better. We got married when we were 12, so it all makes sense now. So it wasn't always this way, though, you know? It wasn't always this way. Um, a few years ago, we were running really hard and fast uh, at the ministry grind, and, and Sheena's words, ministry has become the other woman. You know, I feel like you've got a mistress, and I feel like I'm raising the kids on my own, and this, this isn't working. Um, husbands, when you hear this isn't working, um, that better be like, an alarm better be going off in your head. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we need to take a serious account here, because this needs to work. I mean, if nothing else works, we need to work. So, um, so, you know, I mean, but life was just full of events. I mean, we're talking 80 plus hours a week of just like doing church, you know, and every 15 minute increment of my life was scheduled, not exaggerating, every 15 minute increment other than when I was sleeping was scheduled. And the problem here is that with this kind of living, is you're eventually going to get bulldozed by the busyness or you end up creating a life defined by boundaries just simply for the sake of survival. So I'm talking about boundaries like my kids were scheduled for a few hours out of the week spread across a few different days. The casualty of living like this every single time is always your relationships. So scripture instructs parents, you know, raise your children in the way they should go. The primary call to discipleship for moms and dads. But you cannot make disciples if you're constantly managing boundaries. Now, let that sink in. So parents, your kids, they need accessibility to you, you know, for more than a few segmented hours out of the week. If you expect them to be secure in their identity and excited about their relationship with Jesus. And it's no different in ministry. We're all in ministry. Every believer is a minister. It's no different. It's up to us to live lives worth following, to live a message that's worth sharing. Because trust me, you're going to be a short-lived leader if your life's not worth imitating. So here it is, the most important thing that we can do as ministers of the gospel, that's all of us ministers of the gospel, the most important thing that we can do is to live in the reality of the good news that we're preaching. And I'm so thankful I'm so thankful that God doesn't want his kids to burn out. You know, learning the, uh, the way the message paraphrase says it in Matthew, um, Jesus says, come away with me after his disciples had come back to him and they're telling him all the things that they had, they had gone and done when they divided up two by two and they were casting out demons and they were healing people. And when, as soon as they come back, what does Jesus say? He says, come away with me. I'll teach you how to find a real rest. You know, but learning his unforced rhythms of grace sounds amazing. 
but it goes against my nature. And I'm having to unlearn this tendency to want to control everything so that I can learn what it means to find that real rest. Because, you know, the uh, kingdom doesn't come through being busy. So I want to spend a few minutes digging into these two things. Kingdom comes through the unexpected and kingdom comes to the humble. Number one, through the unexpected. It was the Greek philosopher Heraclitus that said this, if you do not expect the unexpected, you will not find it, for it is not to be reached by search or trail. So to be expectant simply means that we're looking for something to happen, right? But to be wise in our expectancy means that we're ready for possibilities that we didn't anticipate. There's no, uh, there, there are kingdom come opportunities every single day but we just don't notice. It's like this seven-second window that's just begging to be jumped through, uh, but it's too often missed. And talk about missing it. We've been uh, packing up our apartment to move back across the country, and, and all the stuff that you forgot you had resurfaces, right? including old photos, which can be like a lot of fun. So I'm looking at photos of us on vacation as a family a few years ago when my kids were smaller, and I can remember what was happening at the church in that season. But I have a really hard time remembering the moment spent with my family. So I'm smiling in the photo, but I'm not even there. I'm looking at a picture of a guy who was missing it. You know, I, I, um, it's a story. I, I, I love leading worship, you know, and I've been playing guitar for different bands and I've led worship at a few different churches uh, over the years. Uh, but my sister has got the voice. And something like something magical happens. Have you ever heard like siblings sing together? When like we get together, it's just like, it's just stinking awesome. I just, I love it. I'm going to see her next week. The first thing's like, hey, Val, I got my guitar. Let's say, you know, it's just, she's great. So um, I was going back for a visit <clears throat> a couple years ago. And um, I'm on the phone before the visit. And my mom is saying, Joe, uh, actually, Joey, she calls me Joey. Joey, I've been taking voice lessons and, and I'm really like, it's really great. I'm discovering like this, all this things about my voice. I didn't know that I could do. And it's just really exciting. And she's going to, and I'm trying to be encouraging. Well, yeah, that's, that's great, mom. You know, Hey, you stick with that, you know? And, and then I think I kind of forgot about it after the phone conversation, but I'm back home and my sister comes over for dinner. We're sitting around in the living room afterwards and Mom says, Joey, can you get your guitar? And maybe like, maybe the three of us could, could sing together. And wouldn't that be awesome? And, you know, and my, my sister Val and I said something like, you know, Mom, we don't really feel like it. But it wasn't after the visit that I realized that that was it. That was it. My mom had enjoyed Val and I singing and leading worship together for years finally, she was confident enough to actually participate in that moment. She just wanted to be a part of it. She wanted to worship together. And I missed it. You know, you can't imagine how much singing those couple of songs would have blessed her. And that night, there was this open window for the kingdom to come in that room. I really don't feel too sad about it because I'm going to see her next week and I'll be like, hey, mom, you want to sing? And she might be like, I just don't feel like it, Joey. You know? <laughs> so it's okay. You know, we'll make up for it. But I'm telling you that kingdom comes through the unexpected. 
And unfortunately for us 21st century Americans, unexpected is rarely convenient. In Mark 1, it's Jesus' ministry kickoff sermon. This is a familiar passage probably to some of you here tonight. It takes place right after Jesus' baptism and right before his call to the first disciples. Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. Just turn there. It's short, but it's worth it. Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. Just says this. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, some of you guys already know this, but the word time here that Jesus used is the word kairos, not chronos. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about a chronological order of events. Jesus' reference to time here, kairos, means the right or opportune moment. It's a divine interruption. It's an opportunity to go deeper. This is the time and place of kingdom come. Now, after Jesus spoke this words, it might have caused a couple people to stop and scratch their heads for a minute, but ultimately they went back about their day, right? There was only a couple of guys who paused to engage the opportunity, and Jesus called them to follow him. These were Jesus' first disciples. This is where the first call of Christ to be his disciples comes. The problem is that we're wired to miss these moments. I probably would have gone back to fishing. We're wired to resist and tune out the interruptions. We embrace these values like excellence and efficiency. We resist sloppy and time-consuming, and no wonder our relationships are suffering. See, kingdom just doesn't fit within our boundaries, does it? Kingdom comes through the unexpected. So how did Jesus do it? How did he show his followers how to recognize these kingdom moments? You know, I see Jesus surrounded by some pretty zealous guys. Peter, for instance, had this habit of jumping out of boats into deep water and like going to Jesus. I I don't know what, why is he always doing this? I don't understand Peter. But in John 21, the apostles were just days away from receiving their great commission. Yet Jesus is on the shore cooking them breakfast and sharing deep conversation with them. Read on beyond those first 14 verses. It's an awesome story. Some really deep things happen. But Jesus was intentional in setting a pace that those he called could follow. And our pace, right? Our speed, if you will. Our pace determines others' ability to gain proximity. Say pace. Say proximity. Discipleship, Jesus' ministry method, doesn't happen without proximity. And proximity doesn't happen if we're running too fast for other people to keep up. So you simply cannot run at the pace of this world and be effective in the type of ministry that Jesus calls us to do. There should be something very different about the way that we pace our lives. So let me iterate it this way. To see the kingdom... We must leave room in our lives for interruptions. Why? Because kingdom doesn't fit within our boundaries. Kingdom comes through the unexpected. Say unexpected. Unexpected. Number two, kingdom comes to the humble. It's our second reflection tonight. 
You know, once you experience the grace of God, you begin to see things in this new reality. Grace gives this supernatural sight that allows us to receive love and to give love in a whole new way that we've never experienced before. But at the root, there are two things that I've found that keep us from receiving the grace of God. And you're like, no, Joe, that's, that's like heresy. Like, throw them out of the church. Like, you know, everyone can receive the grace of God, right? They can. But there's two things that will cause us to be unable to absorb that into our lives. Number one is bitterness. And number two is pride. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. James 4, 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Say more grace. grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Follow that sentence structure with me for just a moment. God gives more grace. Therefore, he opposes the proud. In context, we see that the reason that God is giving more grace is so that we can stand against evil desires right? I mean, people say all the time, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true, right? But what he does say is my grace is sufficient. So when you're standing in the trial, more grace, more grace is available to you. But grace is empowerment to overcome what we couldn't before. But the proud are ineligible to receive grace. Why? It probably has something to do with the reason why men can't stop to ask for directions, right? Right? I know what I'm doing. The prideful man thinks that he can stand on his own. The proud person cannot acknowledge that they actually have anything to overcome in the first place. So it's the humble and poor in spirit who see the kingdom. So interestingly, pride and bitterness, this is, these are my thoughts. It's not in the Bible, but pride and bitterness, I think, are really closely related. And actually, you'll never find bitterness without pride lurking really close by. The only bitter people that I know are people who are too proud to let go. And listen, this is so important. We don't forgive because others deserve it. We forgive so we can see again. Said we don't forgive because others deserve it. We forgive so we can see again. It's the humble who will see the kingdom. Kingdom comes to the humble. You know, we've had a lot of people come up to us since we announced the launch of L24 Collective. And some people are saying, you know, what you're doing is, man, it's like the hope for the church, man. Uh, And then they quickly go on to list like all these grievances with past churches that didn't do it right. And then we've got on the other side of the coin, we've got these people coming up to us saying, why do you think you're so special? What's so different about you? The former represents a solid number of folks who have beef with their old churches and are once again misplacing their faith in a new one. We really try to discourage this. The latter represents people who are determined to protect the way things are because their faith is wrapped up in a system that they don't want disturbed. But really, we're not focused on being different at all. Consumer-based churches are focused on how they're different because they need a new and exciting product to sell. We just want to focus on becoming more like Jesus in life and ministry. That's it. Jesus, not the church down the street, becomes the only point of comparison. We also think that this should be normal. 
We want to encourage communities everywhere to get back to these basics. We don't want some, like, we have things figured out kind of club, right? All we want to do is to plant the gospel, the good news, and the community that we're being sent to and to make disciples, followers of Jesus. Making disciples, I mean, there's a lot of talk in the church today about making disciples, right? I mean, have you guys kind of heard this buzz? Discipleship is like this. I mean, like 10 years ago, we didn't say discipleship because it was associated with like the shepherding movement where, you know, you had to ask your senior pastor if you were allowed to buy a new car. Okay. So like people were really skittish about it. And lately, like we, we kind of, it's kind of like baby went, went out with the bathwater. Now we're like, oh my gosh, we don't have a baby. So we're like, let's talk about discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. So it's like this trendy word now. Right. And so, but, but I, I think I really think the emphasis is great. I mean, I get really excited when churches get serious about discipleship. But my first thought is this, and my concern is this. What are we discipling people into? Disciple, the word methetes in Greek, just means learner. It's really, it's not a complicated thing. Disciple means learner. So are we making learners of our ideologies and our methods? Or are we truly and purely leading them toward Jesus? Jesus has to be the focus, not the method, Jesus. And so for many, I I mean, I was a discipleship pastor uh, at a church in New York for several years. Um, And one of the things that I observed is that for for many of us, for these program-driven discipleship things, you know, it's it's defined by these checklists of disciplines that we want to make sure that people are observing, right? Right? And, and we actually, we, we use this word called accountability. Like, all right, so we're going to get together and we're in a discipleship group together and we've got seven things that we've got to do every week. And now my six other accountability, accountability buddies are going to make sure that, you know, I'm checking things off of my list. And, you know, so what this becomes is when it's checklist kind of thing, it's like accountability becomes spiritual policing, Right. Whatever happened to spiritual partnership where we say, hey, what's really going on in your life? Not did you check all seven things off your list this week? You know, where have we taken things? And we get very OCD about these spiritual disciplines. But, but when you get OCD about any one spiritual discipline, that's where division comes in. That's where denominations come in. That's where cults come in and so on. But the real purpose of the disciplines is to bring us into greater communion. Don't throw those away. Bring us into greater communion, Lord. As I, as I study my Bible, I want you. What does that look like? They're never meant to be an end in and of themselves. You know, in Scripture, we're called the light of the world. We're called to guide people to the real Jesus, to commune with him, not to sell them on our ideologies. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3. We're all up in the Johns tonight. First John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
That's the word became flesh, dwelt among us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Bookmark that. Go back to it. Ask the Lord how he wants to speak to you through it. But let me recap how I'm seeing this right now. That which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen, we have touched, we proclaim to you also, so that we may have what? Fellowship. What's interesting here is that an ideology, doctrine, as a prerequisite to fellowship, never comes up. Verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. For the community that this author is representing, Jesus is tangible. He's resurrected. Simply put, Jesus is real. Listen. Our priority should be for people to see and experience the real Jesus, acknowledging that he is the leader, that he is the head, and not for them to buy into our image of him. And I'll go ahead and say something that might not be popular with some folks, but doctrine as a prerequisite to community is just idolatrous. You want to kill a culture of belonging? That's the surest way to do it. Paul came to the Corinthians in humility, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The idolatry of ideologies is where we've seen the church throughout history at her worst. This is how religions become violent. Idolatry, the fashioning of our own God as we see fit. Idolatry, the resistance of truth for our own preference. Idolatry, the protection of tradition, even if disproven. Idolatry, accompanied by anger when threatened. Is there anything so prideful as idolatry? 1 John 5 says, we know the true God. Guard yourself from idols. There's a story of this East German barbarian tribe. It's, I, I love it, and I'll just give you the paraphrased version of it. This tribe was known to go up onto a mountain and worship a shadow. But they discovered the truth after generations. One day, as the sun rose, casting tall shadows upon the hillside, someone moved and noticed that the shadow did too. And then another one waved their hand like this, and the shadow waved back. They came to realize that these shadows were their own. For generations, they'd only been worshiping an image of themselves. In the story of uh, the cave by Plato, the, uh, our, our setting is this campfire, uh, you know, casting shadows on the walls of our dwelling. It's representing our reality. And one man finds his way to the edge of the cave, and he sees the sun. And what does he do? He's terrified so, of, of something that big that he can't control, and so he retreats backwards. In fear of the sun, he returns to his campfire. You see, our doctrines, our denominations, our processes, our methodologies, they can become our campfire reality. So what do we do when the God that we've fashioned or the ideology that we've clung to is exposed? The Pharisees killed Jesus. We often fashion our Jesus after our culture, 
or ourselves. And we can tend to hate questions directed towards our ideology because they're like buckets of water that can put out our campfire. And the result of this is this insecure approach to our faith because it only takes a couple buckets to put out our fire. But when you follow Jesus, the son, you're not afraid of the questions. God is not terrified or insecure. We serve a God who is totally in control. The real problem is that we've made idols based on our image of Jesus, fashioning him after our culture, our church culture, our ideologies, our, or ourselves. And you know what we're actually doing? We're breaking the first commandment. This plays into one of the greatest schemes of the enemy, which is to place a disguise on who Jesus really is. And so, I mean, I think authoritarian leaders in the church really play into the devil's scheme with this one at times. And this isn't a slam on leadership at all. It's not a slam on visionary leadership or the pastor down the street. It's an observation. Authoritarian leaders play into this scheme quite a bit, setting themselves up as these spiritual benefactors or those who exert control over us under the guise of knowing what's best for us They end up inserting themselves as the head of the body. And this is what some people call leader worship, but it's what I call the spirit of the Antichrist. And it's when a leader attempts to replace Christ's rightful place in the body of believers. Christ is the head, not a man. Christ is the head. Yet we've been told to submit to the senior leader or else we get booted from the island. The doctrine of submission becomes the prerequisite to fellowship in this case, right? You know, one of the things that uh, I've wondered and I've encountered a lot, especially in Colorado Springs, uh, is why are so many of us who've been involved in the church for so long so hurt? I'd venture to say one reason why. It's because many of us, uh, many of our churches are filled with ideological idols, God instructed us, have no other gods before me, right? And the enemy loves to make us think that our idols are the real God. It's a counterfeit scheme. And when the idol inevitably fails us, we often fail to realize that we had an idol in the first place and we end up blaming the real God, don't we? So we've got all these people angry at God when God had nothing to do with it. Our idol just failed us. 1 John 5, we know the true God. Guard yourself against idols. I love what um, C.S. Lewis, he said this, theology, or what we think about God, is not nearly as important as what God thinks about us. Isn't that awesome? Theology, what we think about God, is not nearly as important as what God thinks about us. God's character is not defined by my ideas about God. God is who he is, and there's no greater testament to his character than through the way that he loves us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's why it's actually impossible to love God. God for who he is without an understanding 
that he first loved us. This is how we know what or who love is. The most important thing is who God actually is. I don't just want to wrap my mind around God. I want to turn my heart towards him. Our first priority shouldn't be to define God, but to discover him. This is how we become learners. This is how we become disciples of the ways of Jesus. Our priority is to discover him. I spoke earlier about how growth happens. It is not simply through learning, but through discovery, which involves both learning and unlearning. And you know, learning and unlearning can't happen without a relational dialogue. Truth is never discovered through opinionated monologues. We need to be able to wrestle these kinds of things out. And I think the key with discovering Jesus and leading others to do the same is is that we need to leave room for questions in our community. We need to be okay with saying, I don't know the answer to that, but let's discover this together. Right? We need to be people who clothe ourselves in humility. Just in closing, some thoughts. One of the things that amazes me about Jesus is that Jesus is wisdom, but Jesus asks questions. Jesus humbled himself and allowed himself to grow in wisdom. Luke 2 talks about Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It goes on to say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. Jesus is the definition of wisdom. In Colossians 2, 2 through 3, it says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the definition of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom, but Jesus asks questions. Why are you terrified? That's what he asked the disciples when they were on the raging sea. Why did you doubt? He asked Peter when they walked on the water. What are you looking for? Jesus asked his first disciples. Have you caught any fish? Jesus asked his seven disciples out in the boat. Jesus' questions are a testament to his purity. Questions bring clarity. Jesus wasn't simply a great thinker. Jesus was a clear thinker. He dealt with the tangible, but he never ignored the real. that doesn't make sense, good. He dealt with the tangible, what you could see and what you could touch, but he never ignored the real. He saw this reality beyond what could be seen or touched in the natural. So watch this. When the paralytic was lowered through the roof by his friends, the first thing that Jesus does is absolutely not what they did and not what they wanted. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus defies our expectations. Jesus does what we don't expect. And we become 21st century Pharisees when we stop discovering and we start defining. And the Pharisees did this in Mark 3. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He casts out demons. And and, uh, in the process, he ends up breaking the religious laws of the day. The the Pharisees define Jesus as Satan in that chapter, right? 
How crazy. Jesus goes on and says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And it's this awesome kind of exchange that they have. Go read it. But, but he breaks the religious laws and he's defined as Satan by the Pharisees. And we say that we love Jesus, but there's a whole lot of times when he may do things that don't align with our understanding. Be careful to keep a humble heart of discovery because it's totally possible to run around unknowingly casting out Jesus thinking that it's Satan. Without humility, we're unable to receive what we can't define. Without humility, we will not be able to receive the unexpected. Without humility, we will not see the kingdom. The kingdom comes to the humble. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we want to know the real you. We want to discover you. God, I pray tonight if there's any of us in the room who have painted ourselves into a corner of understanding because we think we know oh so much, that we would open our hearts and minds to possibilities that your spirit may want to reveal to us. I don't think the same things about you now as I thought before I became a father. You opened my eyes through that experience. Thank you, Jesus. I don't think the same things about you now that I thought before I burned out and I couldn't go in my own strength anymore. I learned about your grace. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that you would make us a people who embrace the unexpected, who embrace the inconvenient, who stop to listen to the stranger when it doesn't even seem to make sense. And in the midst of this, we find kingdom come. Make us a people who embrace the unexpected and make us a people who are humble. Humble just as you are, Jesus. Ask questions just as you did, Jesus. And I pray that through this, you would create a culture here in Keystone Church where people could come and find a place to belong, where people could come and wrestle with their questions and not find an insecure group of people who are afraid that their campfire will get put out. Make us a people who follow the Son. Make us a people who follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.